0: Good morning, Cornerstone. My name is Will Cody, and I'm the campus minister for RUF at Austin Peay State University in Clarksville, Tennessee. It's my third year there, and we are loving it. My wife will be here for the later service, but my wife and three children, we love living in Clarksville. We love being at Austin Peay. I get to hang out with college students all day, thanks to y'all and y'all's support, and it's very—it's uh, extremely messy, and it's extremely beautiful, <laughs> and it is the absolute best job ever to talk about Jesus with these students. Thank you all so much for your support of uh, RUF and Clarksville and and, uh, Cookville and and the rest of the Presbytery. Um, I thought today we could hear from a text that I go back to again and again and again with college students. And I also really need to hear what Jesus says in this text myself over and over and over again. If you could turn to Luke chapter 18, or I guess it's in your bulletins there, your order of worship. Let's hear God speak to us here from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And just a little context before we read it. Jesus, he's on his way to Jerusalem where he is going to be crucified. And as he's on his way there, he has this thronging thronging crowd that is just thronging around him. And he's uh, talking to them on the way to Jerusalem. And this is one of the things that he says to them. Uh, Let's read and then let's pray and ask God for help. All right, so Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord. Love it. Let's pray. Father, as we come to hear your son Jesus speak to us by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us humble hearts, that you would cheer those who are, have been beaten down this, even this week, and that you would um, humble those who are, uh, like myself, who still have pride in our hearts. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. My world got turned upside down when I was about 10 years old. I was in the dugout for Little League practice taking a break with some of my um, Little League friends, and one of my friends, Greg, he pulls out uh, this little pink case, uh, about this big, and he pulls out a little bit of this stuff that was the hottest, it was the hottest edgiest bubble gum of the time. It was called bubble tape. And he, uh, he snaps off a piece, and he puts it in his mouth, and he's munching on it. And I uh, couldn't help myself. He's about to put it in his bag, and i like, hey, Greg, can I get some of that um, bubble tape? And uh, Greg's like, sure, Willie. That's what they called me back then. So um, I was expecting maybe an inch, maybe two inches of bubble tape because that's the normal, uh, maybe just a scrap from Greg because that's what I would have given him if he asked me for bubble tape. But uh, if I remember correctly, my eyes like start bugging out of my head. My jaw goes slack. As I see Greg, he goes, two inches, four inches. Six inches, ten inches. He gives me about a foot of bubble tape and it blew my mind. I didn't know that something like this was possible. I didn't know that you could be this generous with your stuff. It was something brand new to me, I never experienced, and it was so unexpected, it was so exciting, it was so over the top. And then he started giving it out to my teammates, and it just blew my mind. It changed me forever of what's possible to do with your stuff. Uh, This kind of extravagant generosity, I'm still thinking about it 30 years later, right? And it's something I never experienced before, and it broke all the conventions about what's possible and, and, and what can be done and how we can treat each other, and it flipped my world upside down. So, the story that Jesus is talking, the story that Jesus tells here in Luke chapter 18 is meant to elicit something similar to the feeling that I had that day in Little League in the dugout. The normal way that the world works, the conventions of this world, are shattered by the message here that Jesus gives us, especially in verse 14. Jesus says in verse 14, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself, will be exalted, because in Jesus's kingdom, everything gets flipped upside down, and it's exciting, and it's unexpected, and you don't know what's gonna happen next. Let's get into what this means by entering into the story that Jesus tells us, and there are, I think there are three obvious points, at least, that are in this text, there's probably more, but the big idea of this text is that God humbles the exalted, and God exalts the humble, And if God humbles the exalted and he exalts the humble, then we should do three things. Our first point, let go of your righteousness. Number two, humble yourself. And number three, show mercy. So point one, let go of your righteousness. Point two, humble yourself. Point three, show mercy. Let's look at this first point. Because God humbles the exalted, we should let go of our righteousness. Look with me in verse 9. Um, Jesus is speaking to this general crowd, but unlike some other, a lot of his other parables, Luke tells us who specifically he's talking to amongst this crowd. He says, uh, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So Jesus is talking to this subset of people, and instead of telling him, hey, knock it off, stop trusting in your righteousness, instead he tells them this story. So let's look. Let's get into this story. It's a really, really interesting story. Starting in verse ten, um, Jesus says, "Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector." So the setting of this story is going to be the temple in Jerusalem, which everyone would, have, his audience would have been familiar with. And in walks two men, and the first man is a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the conservative religious leaders of the day in Israel. And we have pretty negative connotations. When you hear that word Pharisee, it's not good to be called a Pharisee, right? Uh, it's got very negative connotations, due much due to how they responded to Jesus and to Jesus' message. But that would have not been how the original audience would have understood Pharisees. In fact, it's kind of hard to come up with a modern parallel to how they thought of Pharisees. Because today, in general, we are very skeptical of, um, of authority figures, right? And we're especially skeptical of religious authority figures. So it's kind of hard to imagine. But in this time, in this context, Pharisees were closer to actually being the models of Jewish society. They were the influencers of the day, these Pharisees. They represented the ideal Jewish life. You wanted your, ch- your son to grow up to be a Pharisee. That would have been your dream. <clears throat> so these guys, they were disciplined. They knew their Bibles probably better than anybody here. They believed their Bibles, and they were popular, and they were respected and followed. And you did, as no- normal common people, we did our very best to live up to the crazy standards that these Pharisees held themselves to. So this well-respected religious leader, he goes up into the temple to pray. And if you're in the crowd listening to this, you are going to be shocked by the end of this. This is like an M. Night Shyamalan kind of ending in the first century. You're going to be shocked about where this story ends up. So he's standing there by himself, and he's about to pray. And it looks like this nice, sweet, pious, private, Moment, but then he opens his mouth and we get a glimpse of what's really going on inside of this Pharisee. Here's listen to his prayer one more time he, in verse uh, 11 and 12. He says, Now imagine you hear somebody praying this, okay? He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. Amen. Now, that is a funny prayer, isn't it? It starts out good. It's got a little gratitude at the beginning, right? It says, I thank you, God. Um, You can't go wrong with that, or can you? (laughs) Um, By the end of this prayer, you start to wonder, who exactly was he thanking at the beginning, this Pharisee? Because what he's doing is he's got this list in his head, and he's checking off all the check marks of the things that he's done and the things that he hasn't done. And he even goes the extra step of fasting twice a week, that's not required anywhere. He gives a tenth of all that he gets, of everything that he gets, basically. So for example, if he got like a dozen roses on Valentine's Day, he would tithe 1.2 percent. He would tithe 1.2 roses somehow. <laughs> everything that he gets, he tithes. 10 percent given to God or given away. And by the end of this prayer, you start to understand who is really getting all of the honor here. Now notice, All of these things are good. This is a really important point. All of these things are good. It's good not to be an extortioner. It's good not to be unjust. It's good not to be an adulterer, right? This guy is a just, he's a good man. This Pharisee is a good guy. In modern times, this would be a guy who pays his employees fairly. He's faithful to his wife. He goes to church every week. Maybe he leads Sunday school. He's actively involved in his children's lives. He cares about the earth. He cares about social justice. He cares about the unborn. He gives to the poor. This guy is a good man. He's a good guy. That's how the original audience would have understood it too. But what the Pharisee is doing and what I can find myself doing and what maybe you can find yourself doing so easily is taking my best good works, my righteous life, my righteous deeds or my good of my life and trusting in that that this is my righteousness. And this guy, this Pharisee, he's so blatant about it too. He's coming to God, he's satisfied with himself that all these good works that he's doing are making him right with God. He's coming to prayer wanting a high five from God about all the things that he has done that he can get acceptance and righteousness from what the things that he's done. He's saying, these things make me worthy. These things make God to favor me. This makes me better than others. This thing that I'm doing, or this thing that I haven't done, this atones for those little bad things, those little bad things I might find myself doing sometimes, or have done. And the result is that this good man, in verse 14, remember this is a good man, he goes home in verse 14, not right with God. This is where the gasp would have been for the original audience. This guy goes home not right with God. He goes home rejected this good man. He goes to God with all these good works and they're falling out of his arms as he's bringing them to the temple to show God. And he goes home rejected because God does not want his righteousness. God does not want his righteousness and God does not want your righteousness. When I was in college, I, for one year I went to UT Knoxville, but for one year I went to UTC, and I got a job there in a kitchen at a restaurant. And pretty much all of my coworkers were from Guatemala. And there was this one Guatemalan guy; his name was Miguel. And I ended up chopping vegetables next to this guy—a lot of onions and peppers. We just spent a lot of time next to each other, and I couldn't really get him like to like me. Um, he was pretty quiet, not very personable, and particularly not friendly to me. He just was not a friendly guy to me. I don't know why. But I tried to, I knew that his birthday was coming up, and I thought maybe I could get him something and win his favor. Maybe I could get this guy, Miguel, on Team Will. So I spent a bunch of money, which was back then, you know, this is early 20s, so it was like a, so I got him this uh, English-Spanish dictionary. It was like 20-something bucks, which inflation is like $3,000 today. That's how much it was. <laughs> it was a huge sacrifice for a college student to get this for this guy, for Miguel, and I was all excited to get it, get, give it to him. And I remember walking into work that one day and I was like, Feliz cumpleaños!" and I gave him the dictionary. And he kind of looked at it weird and it was kind of an awkward moment. And I remember just, um, it, I remember thinking, okay, maybe Miguel, he's just not an expressive guy. He's probably just overwhelmed with my generosity. <laughs> he doesn't know what to say. Um, but the next day, so the next day I come into work and the, the dictionary sitting on the top of the shelf above the dishwasher, he just left it there at work. And I was, my feelings were a little bit hurt. Um, but then I thought, he oh, just forgot it. And then the next day, it's there. And the next day, it's still there. The next day, it's still there. It's almost like he was kind of like showing me, I do not want this will. <laughs> Apparently, he did not want that present. Um, every, day after day, I came in until, until I finally left that job. It was still there on top of the dishwasher. It could still be there today, maybe. Um, but Miguel, Miguel did not want that present. Uh, I never got him on Team Will. Maybe I should have done a little more homework into what Miguel actually might have wanted, or maybe asked him, or listened to what he might have actually wanted. We too, we are so tempted to give God these things that we think are going to win or keep his favor toward us. And it might be like an overtly religious thing, or it might be a less overtly religious thing. There are so many ways that we are tempted to trust in ourselves that I am righteous And that God's going to see it and say, good job, Will, I accept you. Um, There are so many ways. These are some from my heart. Um, Maybe, for example, my success in my education and career, despite so many people against me, despite so many obstacles growing up, I succeeded and I have a righteous life. Or maybe that I'm a good parent. Or maybe that I'm a better parent than somebody else. Or maybe that as my kids grow up, and this is totally seen this in my heart, the success of my children is my righteousness. It's so easy to make that my righteousness. Or maybe even the fact I don't have sex outside of marriage. Maybe that is your righteousness before God. Or I recycle and I help my friends take care of the earth. That can be your righteousness. Or that you read the Bible and you know a lot about theology. You know more than everybody else. And that can be your righteousness, or maybe it just feels good to remember some loser in my family or some loser in my friend group, and be like, "At least I'm not like that guy <laughs> or that girl." Uh, maybe you tell God this stuff. Maybe you tell yourself this stuff. Maybe you low key let everybody know around you that this stuff that you, your righteousness. Um, these and here's the thing: these are all probably good things. These are all good things, probably, but. Jesus says to you, and you can put this on a t-shirt, give up is what Jesus says. Give up on your righteousness. Stop. If you want to be right with God, you need to look at every good thing you have done and declare, this is not my righteousness. This does not make God love me. This does not make God accept me or care for me. Give up. And can we not, I don't know, just let's appreciate for a moment how upside down this is, how crazy this is, how Jesus' kingdom works. Every other religion, every other world system, every other, every influencer that might be out there, as far as I know, this is how they, this is what they point you to. Do this and gain. Self-sacrifice and you'll find redemption. Discipline yourself. You can find it in yourself if you work hard enough and discipline yourself enough. You can be worthy. Work hard, at least just be a good person, and you can reach paradise. Whether that paradise is here or in the hereafter. You can find paradise if you just work hard enough. Supposedly, Buddha's last words were strive without, you might have heard this before, strive, strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. Never give up. Keep working hard. Never stop. Strive without ceasing. And isn't this so otherworldly, what Jesus says here and elsewhere? Here's what Jesus is saying. Give up. (laughs) Give up. Let go of your righteousness. Let go of ever trying to make yourself righteous. If you're wondering if God loves you and accepts you and cares for you, if you just want to know that you're okay, Jesus plainly says here that your righteousness, your goodness, your best, he doesn't want it. Jesus doesn't want your best to be righteous. God humbles the exalted like this Pharisee. He rejects them. So we should let go of our righteousness. That's our first point. Um, Our second point would be the flip side of this coin. Because God exalts the humble, we should humble ourselves. All right, this point's going to get even crazier, guys. This is another man in our parable. He is the tax collector, all right? So when this character is introduced, it would have been the flip almost reverse when it came to how they thought about Pharisees. It would have been almost the complete opposite. In first century Jewish culture, tax collectors were considered the scum of the scum, right? They were right there with murderers, with robbers, with prostitutes. You didn't have to, in Jewish culture... And you didn't have to tell the truth. You could lie to a tax collector. That's how low they were. And the reason that they were so despised was, first of all, they could collect whatever tax they want from you and then keep what's left. Keep the extra, right? Um, But the worst thing was that these tax collectors were Roman collaborators. These guys are traitors. They are absolute traitors. Imagine, so, you know, the Roman Empire has come and taken over, and these guys have volunteered to get paid a lot of money to take money from their fellow Jews and give it to the Romans. So it's like if aliens invaded the earth and they were like, hey, we need some volunteers. We're going to pay you a lot of money and you're going to extract the taxes, whatever that looks like, our, our blood, our energy. I don't know what aliens would want, but you're going to extract this from everybody else and you're going to give it to us. And we're going to pay you a lot of money. I would be a traitor. You guys should hate my guts, right? <laughs> right? I'm a traitor to the whole human race. Um, there's this assumption here when it comes to the tax collector that he's got like a heart of gold or something down there in the bottom. He doesn't. The tax collector is a bad dude. <laughs> he's objectively, like this guy's untrustworthy. He's opportunistic. He's a parasite. He's a traitor. These are just objective facts about this guy. <laughs> he's not likable. And again, the crowd would have gasped at the end of this story where, the, where the, this ends with the tax collector. So this tax collector, he comes to the temple to pray, and we're told that he stands far off. He couldn't even lift his face, like lifting your face up is lifting your face up to God. He can't even lift his face up to be face-to-face with God. And he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now notice the difference. He has got nothing to offer to God. He's got nothing to show himself, nothing to tick off, no righteousness, no deeds, no high fives. In fact, not only is he offering, not offering anything to make up for his wicked life, he's asking for something. He's coming to God, and who knows why he's there. Maybe that traitoring stuff, that might not even be on his mind. <laughs> Maybe he came because he realized he, was, he treated his children poorly. Maybe he came because he had a falling out with a friend, and he just realized this is all my fault, and I hurt my friend so badly. And he's come to God in that state. Whatever it is, the realization of this guilt guilt has overwhelmed this man. And he knows that he deserves God's wrath. And that anything that he grasps for in himself, any kind of righteousness to try to hold up to God, he knows that it's not there. He knows that it's worthless. He owes God for wrecking God's good world. But he's got nothing to give him. On top of that, he's given up on his righteousness. So he doesn't give God anything. He doesn't offer God anything. He doesn't promise God anything because he knows he's got nothing to give. Instead, he asks for something instead. He asks for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That big debt that he owes God for the mess he's made of his life the people around him, of his, of his own relationship with God. This man who, like this guy, as far as we know, he has made no resolutions. He's made no, there's no repentance that he's talked about here. There's no promises. This man is asking God to take care of this debt for him. Be merciful to me. How presumptuous is this tax collector? How inappropriate is this request? What an upside down thing. To ask of God. You know, later, so later in the same chapter, chapter 18, Jesus is entering into Jericho and there's this blind guy, his name's Bartimaeus, we find out later from other places. And Bartimaeus says something similar to Jesus. Bartimaeus says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, the words there, when, when uh, in English it says, have mercy on me, in both places, that text and our text. And the words there for have mercy in the original Greek, you don't need to know this, it's just helpful, but it's helpful. It's helpful. You don't need the Greek for this. But Bartimaeus, when he asks have mercy, he's saying, um, I need physical help for my physical weakness. But the Greek word here in the tax collector's mouth is translated mercy here, but it's a different word in the Greek. And literally what he, the tax collector is saying here, the tax collector is saying, God, be propitiated, be propitiated to me, a sinner. So if you know what propitiation means, you are a weird person, okay? You shouldn't know what propitiation means. Uh, Propitiation is this big word that we never use in normal life. And it basically means the satisfaction of wrath. The satisfaction, wrath satisfied, wrath finished. Wrath is over. Wrath spent out. So he's saying, I need, so the tax collector, okay, even crazier, let's go a little deeper what he's asking for. The tax collector is saying to God, God, satisfy the wrath that I justly deserve for what I've done on someone else. I need you to satisfy that somewhere else. I need you to provide a propitiation for me, someone else to take that wrath. He's saying to God, and compare this to the Pharisee, he's saying, my only hope is if you take care of me because I can't. I've got no righteousness you would ever be able to accept in the first place. All I am is debt, and I am Utterly unable to make it up to you. Someone else has to. Punish my guilt in someone else. <laughs> Doesn't this sound crazy? How could he ask God for such a thing? It's crazy. But look at verse 14. Because of this outrageous request, the tax collector went home justified. This tax collector went home accepted and right with God. The wrath Poured out, poured out, elsewhere. This is what it looks like to humble yourself. The one who confesses no merits, no goodness, no righteousness, and then on top of that, ask God to help him out of the situation that he's put himself in. This is this is in this it, this guy's in. <clears throat> the bad guy is in. While the good guy, the Pharisee, full of his own righteousness, went home still under God's wrath, rejected. Everything is upside down in Jesus's kingdom. Now, I sometimes wonder during Jesus's ministry, when he tells stories like this and talk about sinners uh, receiving mercy uh, in the midst while they're sinners, what is Jesus feeling and thinking about when he is talking about tax collectors and other sinners who receive propitiation from God? Because Jesus isn't talking about um, something far off. Jesus is not a neutral third party. This isn't like a thought experiment for Jesus. In fact, Jesus is talking about himself. He is on his way to Jerusalem where he will be the propitiation. He's the third character in this story that makes everything work. He is the propitiation that makes this story work. In this parable, The wrath of God was averted from the tax collector onto Jesus himself when he died on the cross. The guilt for the tax collector's sins were punished in him, in Jesus, when he died on the cross. And everything we need to be right with God is accomplished. And then three days later, he rose from the grave and proved that it's all true. Strive without ceasing. That's what Buddha's last words were. Do you remember what Jesus' last words were when he was on the cross? It's not strive without ceasing. What did he say? It is it's finished. That's right. And he gave up his spirit. There is nothing to strive for. It is finished. Jesus says it's finished. And all we do in response is trust him. This is what it looks like to humble yourself, to trust in this, sa- this dying Savior. We give up our own righteousness and we rest upon Jesus alone for salvation. This is the offer of the gospel, give up and trust in Jesus for your righteousness. It's the good news of the gospel. So this leads to our last point: <clears throat> because God exalts the humble, we should be merciful. We're just going to take. There's a lot of applications we could do here, but this is just one of them. Um, Luke tells us in the intro to this parable that Jesus told this parable to those that trusted in their own righteousness and treated others with contempt. Let's see how this might apply. Um, in how we, Christians, show mercy to unbelievers. What does that mean? What, what, is, what this text is saying? How does it apply to our relationship and how we speak to and, and um, relate and have relationships with unbelievers? Whether it's Pharisee types or tax collector types. Um, it means that our desire... And our goal, so to speak, with unbelievers, with our unbelieving friends and family members, coworkers, neighbors, is not to make them good people, okay? Our goal is not to make them good people. It's to introduce them to Jesus, the propitiation for their sins. There's a part of me that wants uh, my non-Christian friends and family members, that wants all these crazy college students at Austin peak <laughs> that I have relationships with, I just want them to stop sinning, guys, stop sinning and be good. And there may be some good motives there, because I, I don't want them to reap the immediate benefit. There's some good motives there, I guess. But I often want to say stuff like this. Stop acting like you're married to this person you met a week ago. <laughs> stop doing drugs. Stop shoplifting. Um, get your life together. But saying this stuff to them or intimating that this is the way of Christianity is inviting them to be a Pharisee. It's poison. Just this last week, I was, had this text on my mind as I met with a student. It was our first one-on-one coffee in the, in the uh, university center. And it was our first one-on-one coffee, and he told me that a couple weeks ago, he found out... He's a non, not unchurched, non-Christian student. And he told me a few weeks ago, he found out that his girlfriend, his long-distance girlfriend, who he had met during uh, winter break, was pregnant, and she was going to keep the child... And he was in process of deciding whether or not to be in cho- involved in this child's life. Um, he, this guy never asked my opinion. I just asked questions and um, just listened to him. And there were a lot of things that I desperately wanted to scream at this guy. <laughs> I desperately wanted this guy to change. Don't do this uh, for his girlfriend's sake, for his child's sake, for his sake. Don't you know, walk away from this thing that you've Anyway, there's a lot of stuff was going through in my mind. I'm kind of a little triggered right now. Um, but I experienced that. You can see this internal conflict that was going on with me when I wanted to tell him to get married, be a father to this child, man up, take responsibility. But what if I had? First of all, he would have never, he would, this guy would have never met with me again. I guarantee that. Um, but coming from me, and he knows I'm a Christian, it would have communicated that the, that the basic thing about Christianity is being good and moral. And manning up, and taking responsibility. I would have offered him a way to create his own righteousness right there, right there, and to do the right thing. And imagine this. What if I did say those things to him? And in response, he did what I said, or miraculously, he did what I said. Imagine that he decided to be a father to this child. Imagine that he decided to get married to this woman who's always already treating like they're married. Uh, imagine that he even starts coming to church, starts coming to the church that I go to and follows me there. Um, Then what would I have achieved? So here's what I would have achieved. This student would have ended up a good, righteous, faithful, young family man, chaste, you know, family man, that at the end of the day goes home not justified, not right with God, still rejected. Rejected. There are people that we want to change politically, we want to change their politics, we want to, we want to change them uh, morally, maybe there's something about their lifestyle that really irks me and I need them, I want them to change. Or just general. maybe their personality is just really annoying and I want them to change. Uh, and even if we got our way, that's not loving them. That's not trusting the Holy Spirit. That's not showing mercy. I think it would be a um, response to this text. That's actually putting barricades and blocks and, uh, and walls between them and the actual salvation through the propitiation that is Jesus. What they need is Jesus, not some righteousness. What they need is Jesus, not a cleaned-up life. If we're, We are not in the business of making cleaned-up people. If you've known Christians long enough, we're a pretty messy bunch, Right? <laughs> Um, our non-Christian friends and family and coworkers and neighbors, what they need is not to be good. What they need is not to be good. What if we just love them with a love that is out of this world, we pray for them, and we introduce them to Jesus as God gives us the opportunity, and we just let the Holy Spirit work in them. Now, what's funny about all these places where we're tempted To introduce stumbling blocks instead of to them, instead of introducing Jesus. Guess what? Guess what that conversation I had with that student revealed about my own heart? (laughs) If I'm so triggered to tell this student to man up and take responsibility and be a good father, doesn't that betray that part of me thinks that righteousness is found in manning up, taking responsibility, and being a good father? That that's somehow the gospel to do these things? Um, The people that we, as we come to the table here, the people that we're most tempted to want to manipulate and change, what does that reveal about where we ourselves are tempted to find righteousness apart from Jesus? But this is why, in mercy and love, Jesus tells us this story. And this is also why Jesus meets us in this meal, the Lord's Supper, that we would deepen our trust in him Alone, the Lord's Supper is this physical proclamation of what Jesus has done. He died for you in your place. He is your propitiation, and eating this bread, which represents His body, and this in this cup, which represents His blood. This represents that when you take hold of this, you are taking alone. This is my salvation, Jesus. You alone are my propitiation and my righteousness and my salvation. So, in a few moments, as we eat and drink. Let's grasp onto Him alone for salvation, and let's pray that the Spirit would swell our faith in Jesus alone for our righteousness, as He is our righteousness. Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you for sending Your Son to be our propitiation when we were dead and we were all debt. Would you show us this week the places in our lives where we are tempted to trust in anything else, so that we can repent, we can trust in Your Son, and we can love others.